House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KKNW Seattle. It's 11.50 a.m. I'm your host today, Al Warren. Keb Thompson is still on assignment. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio Cub with two Bs, and of course we're on Facebook. Now, we are doing a lot of Ripper this month, and um, this is our third guest covering Jack the Ripper, and he's been on before, uh, years ago, on the other network, and uh, we're welcoming him back to talk about his new book called Ripper Confidential, and welcome Tom Westcott. Well, Al, it is awesome to be back. How are you doing? I'm surviving. <laughs> You're surviving. <laughs> you have a cold, huh? Yeah, I still got a cold, you know. Um, so far this year, I've had one heart attack and one cold. What? I didn't know about that. You're too young. You're too young for all this. Not the cold, but the other thing. <laughs> well, it'd be, well, you know, it was a surprise to everybody around here. I uh, um, had the pain in the chest back in March, and... Uh, it wouldn't go away, so I went into the hospital, and I had had a heart attack. Wow. Yeah, so they uh, did the angiogram, the stent, and uh, kept me in for about a week, and uh, here I am. Well, so, you know, it could have been a heck of a lot worse, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no. It's, it's pretty amazing, you know, when you think about what they can do, in, in such a short time nowadays, and they just go up through your arm. They go up through yeah. your arm, into your heart. Uh, they did the um, the plasty, then they put the stent in, and the whole thing, all within 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's all done. And then you're back to normal within a week. Uh, it's just crazy. Other than yeah. medication, you know, you got to take, so you have to get used to that. But um, just, it's crazy what they can do now. I mean, this is something that, you, you would have just died from before, big open heart surgery and all that. So there you go. Well, you've just got to watch your stress levels, you know. Maybe maybe having so many ripperologists on isn't a good idea for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all at once, you know. They're all, it's either Jack the Ripper or, um, you know, the Kennedy killing. It's, it's just all oh, yeah. at once. Everybody's doing it at the same time. So. Uh, you know, uh, and I and I, I must say, so now your book's been doing really well. Yes. What is different about your book, or what is it that you think people are attracted to when there's, you know, three, four others that have come out the same time primarily, but what is it about yours that people, why do they come to you? Well, you know, uh, I think it's because I'm first and foremost a reader myself. You know, I buy books, I read books. Um, I, I read all the same books that other Ripper readers do. And um, one of the things, you ask anyone who, who reads Ripper books regularly, they'll tell you they're very formulaic. Um, right. A lot of times you find yourself skipping to the back just to see the new stuff, read about the suspect or what have you, and that the majority of the book is just a rehash, a repeat of the same old dry facts from book after book. So when I set out to write The Bank Holiday Murders, my first Ripper book that came out in 2014, which I was on your, your uh, show on the other network to talk about, the, uh, you know, I wrote a completely different kind of Ripper book, and that was intentional. Um, and one of the goals I had in mind was to write a book that jaded readers could get into from page one and enjoy 
um, you know, whether they agreed with me or, you know, anything, it was, was irrelevant. Uh, I wanted them to at least be entertained by it. And by presenting a wealth of new um, evidence and information and insight that is not culled from previous Ripper books. And then I've just continued that. And, and f- in fact, I would wager any Ripper book I do is going to be different from any other one that's out there. That, and that is intentional on my part. Now, so now because you're a reader and, and I find myself doing this a lot. Um, so you get into something and you read, and then you kind of go. So you kind of go, well, how can this be? So and what I'm getting at is, I, I've noticed that you discuss in this book other rippers, uh, like Walter Sickert. Uh, well, you mean you mean ripper suspects? Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, right. It's the cold. But uh, so now. How is it that you're you're so positive about some of the others that are not the victims or not the the suspects? You mean why do I think they're not? well? Walter Sickert is a good example of someone who was not a suspect. Um, you have to understand, you know, like how how these names come into the fray to begin with. And in his case, there was in the 1970s there was a fellow by the name of Joseph Gorman who stated he was the son, the um, you know bastard son of Walter Sickert, and he sold this fantastic story of a royal conspiracy being behind the Jack the Ripper murders, and this became the subject of Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final uh, Solution, which I believe to date is still the biggest-selling Ripper book of all time. Um, movies like Johnny Depp's From Hell were culled from it. Anyway, it was a, a big fiction um, you know, uh, on on uh, Joseph Sickert's part or Joseph Gorman's part, it was a big fiction, and but this brought Walter Sickert into the fray and and the, as a potential suspect, and he but he's not, he's never been a serious suspect. Actual Ripperologists do not consider him an actual suspect. There's no reason to. In fact, there's good evidence that he was in Paris, France, for two of the Ripper murders. Right, right. so. Uh, there's no reason to take him seriously. Patricia Cornwell, who is, uh, you know, a a bit of a zealot when it comes to Sickert, um, and, you know, and she's a great author. She's a great author. Her fiction is is great. Even her Ripper books are good to read just because she's a talented writer. But she's way off in her facts, um, and, and there's just nothing to support Walter Sickert as having been Jack the Ripper at all. So... Well, how do people get so way off on their facts? I think that's trying to, what I'm trying to get at. So, like, for uh, just a person out there that's not reading every single book and all that stuff, they're just out there and they see a couple of Ripper books out, and they pick up, let's say, Patricia's book. Mm-hmm. How is it that they know what's real and what's not? And, you know, they pick up your book, and they pick up uh, uh, Richard Patterson's book, or um, anybody that's putting out this they all sort of name different people. Right. So, so how can it be so, I mean, I hear there's there's a hundred different people that have been named as the, you know, the person that could have been the Ripper. So right. how is it, as just a lay reader that I pick up, how can I know who's telling me the true facts? Well, and here's the thing. A lot of Ripper authors have really good intention and they play fair with the facts. But, you know, as a reader, you've got to understand that it's not a solved case. So when someone is arguing for their suspect, all of the facts are viewed through the lens of the author. 
um, who wants you to believe in their suspects. So um, they're not, you know, they're, they're, if you understand that, then, then it's fair play. Um, <clears throat> what's unfair is when an author makes up stuff or just blatantly lies, which doesn't happen a whole lot, but it does happen. Right. Uh, but otherwise, you should read Ripper books for entertainment and not because this person's actually going to tell you who the Ripper is. Now, my two books, I do not solve the case for you. I don't tell you who Jack the Ripper was, um, but I do solve a lot of other mysteries that are surrounding it or bring up new mysteries, in fact, for discussion. My books are very much for Ripperologists as opposed to the lay reader who's never read. If you've read five or six Ripper books, you can get into my stuff and enjoy it. If you've never read one, I might not be the best place to start. Um, but see, you got to understand, too, a lot of Ripper books are, are written by people who are not Ripperologists. Patricia Cornwell being a great example. Um, she might be knowledgeable enough in the case now to, to state that she is one, but when she put out her, her book in 2006, she didn't have a clue. She really didn't. Um, in her, her latest book, she's been more responsible. Um, she, she has wonderful researchers on her payroll like Keith Skinner. Uh, she has Paul Begg, one of, you know, the legends in the field, um, who looked over her ripper facts to make sure they were as accurate as could be. So I respect her for that. Um, even if I think her, her theory, which is the reason for the book existing, is very silly. Um, you know, again, if you just want a good read, then you could do a lot worse than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I didn't read that one. I listened to it. Same difference. Same difference. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, as long as you like the person reading it, you know, because so, sometimes that really affects the read, the listen. Well, and the person who wrote it, and like I said, she's talented. Um, she will bring people to the case because of her, just like From Hell did, just like The Final Solution did in the 70s, the Michael Caine movie in 1988. Um, all these these things are kind of silly, but they interest people. They catch their attention and make them look closer. And then they read a book, and then they realize, oh wait, there's other books, there's other solutions. I gotta, I gotta see. Yeah. And then yeah. They, that's how you get the bug. That's what happened to me and so many others. You got to keep looking, and the next thing you know, you're not just looking at who was Jack the Ripper. You're curious about all the other people involved in the case and all these other little uh, debates that are, you know, you want to weigh in on them and. Next thing you know, you're a ripperologist and you're fighting with someone like me on the internet. <laughs> yeah, there you go, big big battle on the internet, Facebook right. group. So now, tell us what what new information have you brought forward in the book? Well, there's a ton in this book that you will not have seen in other ripper books. Um, even though some of these are. Uh, Essays that I had published in journals in years past, um, they, you know, of course, were not widely read. They were in small journals. And so I've updated them and included them in this book because they're worthwhile and they deserve a wider audience. But what I've done here is the book is in three sections. And by the way, the name of the book we're talking about is Ripper Confidential New Research on the Whitechapel Murders. And uh, the first section, which is roughly 80 pages, is regarding the murder of Polly Nichols, um, which uh, no one, uh, everyone understands is a ripper murder. There's no debate about that. But what I've done here is I've looked really close at this, um, provided a lot of uh, new insights regarding, say, the medical evidence, a lot of new ideas um, surrounding her murder and her death and what it might mean. 
And I think one of the most interesting things, it was certainly interesting for me, and and from what I understand, readers have enjoyed it, is I take a look at some blood evidence in a nearby street um, and reports of another woman screaming and running um, and a bloody handprint and all of this. And I um, offer the suggestion that there was another woman who, prior to Polly Nichols' murder that night, had been set up on by Jack the Ripper, but who ran away and survived. And, um, and you know, it makes sense that Jack the Ripper would have surviving victims because, you know, most serial killers do. Um, but none of, you know, Jack's, we don't, you know, whoever this woman was, she, um, I offer a um, lady by the name of Margaret Millis who went to the London hospital with an injury uh, cut to the radial artery, which is in the forearm of the hand, like you might see in a defensive wound from a knife. But it may not have been her, but it may have been someone else who just didn't seek medical attention, but who left behind a bloody handprint, who ran through the street, streets screaming the words murder and police. Um, and then short time after that, Polly Nichols was murdered in, in the next street over. And some people are already arguing, oh, that's a coincidence. Maybe, but, you know, why would you assume that's a coincidence? How many people were running around attacking women on these two streets that night? Yeah. Well, now, would there be a reason why that other person wouldn't have come forward, do you think? Many reasons. One, they're prostitutes. Prostitutes habitually didn't come forward to the police. The very first Whitechapel murder was Emma Smith, who um, was beaten and abused so badly she died 24 hours later but she survived long enough to walk back to her lodging house and her friends had to practically force her just to go to the hospital and then when she got to the hospital she had no interest in speaking to the police and didn't didn't talk to the police and then died the next day this was common if you didn't die you didn't go to the police because if you went to the police you're going to be in a lot more trouble when you heal and get out, right? So, yeah, um, it's it's not surprising if someone would have been, say, cut or attacked and ran away that they would not have reported it because there was no incentive for them to do so. Now, now London was also a very... Um in in the East East End, it was it was not in a good situation. People were starving. A lot of people were selling sexual favors for food and money. Like that was right. very common back then, so uh, we all uh, people should also understand uh, the situation going on in in the city at the time. Right, the East End. Of, uh, well, London itself was the most powerful city in the world. It, it was then what New York City is now, and um, you know you had the East End, which you know we would call the ghettos. Uh, the poorest of the poor lived there. Um, there actually was uh, food was cheap and relatively plentiful, uh, potatoes and the and the like. But people would starve. Um, alcoholism was rampant. You know, you didn't have your meth or your crack or your coke and all of this, but you had alcoholism. Uh, murders were not terribly common. The murder rate in the East End of London, if you compare that to the murder rate in American or even UK ghettos now. It was almost non-existent then. Um, so, but crime was rife. Crime was constant, uh, just not so much murder. And uh, so, when Jack the Ripper appeared and started murdering women on the street, 
you know, it gathered a lot of notice, and obviously because here we are, 128 years later, talking about it still. <laughs> still, still talking about it. Right. Still it's, still you know, you look at Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, all these guys. Um, what did they do? They, you know, pick up their victims, take them back to a safe location where they could be alone with them. Um, you know, Jack the Ripper did not do that. He killed them on the open street in the busiest city in the world. Um, and he got away with it over and over and over. And that's one of the unique things about him is they have Jack the Ripper walks where tour guides will take you from murder site to murder site to murder site all in the course of like an hour. You can't do that with any other serial killer, <laughs> cover all their murder sites. And it's, so that shows you how concentrated these murders were in their locations. Yeah. Um, and you had the most powerful police force and biggest, uh, you know, in the world. They couldn't catch the guy. So, yeah, all these things and then that wonderful name. What a branding, you know, Jack the Ripper. All of those, you know, come into play and guarantee him immortality. What do you think the biggest misconception or the biggest thing that people have uh, in mind when they come to Jack the Ripper that's probably not true? What, what does everybody get wrong? Uh, that the case is solved. I think because so many writers... Um, you know, talk about the, I've solved the case or the case is solved. That's dangerous because there are people out there who still may have um, documents, you know, the descendants of police officers at the time or politicians, you know, members of parliament who have documents that could be crucial to our understanding of the case, but they throw them away. They get rid of them because they think they're irrelevant now because they heard the case was solved. And uh, and I know that's happened. I mean, that that's just happened. It has happened already, and it could happen uh, again. So the biggest misconception is that the case is at all solved. Yeah, yeah. And there's always um, new evidence, as it's as it's said. You know, like uh, yeah. you know the shawl and different things that always are coming out, and then later we find out it's probably not true. Right. Well, I've known about the shawl since the nineties. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. not that wasn't new, but. A guy decided to write a book about it and talk about DNA evidence, and that made it seem new and relevant, you know, when in fact it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people bought into that. Well, sure they did. I would have if I didn't know better. I mean, it, it, it made sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, what's, what's the thing that you put in this book that's the most surprising you think people will be shocked maybe by? Well, I don't know. It's hard to say. There's a lot of stuff in there, I think, especially for regular Ripper readers. Um, there's a lot of new stuff. What The thing I think is potentially the most crucial is in the second section devoted to Ripper victim Elizabeth Stride, who I've made a special um, study of for many, many years, and I've written a lot about her. Um, I bring up a lot of new information relating to Israel Schwartz, who is considered one of the key witnesses in the case, a man who most likely saw Jack the Ripper. And I bring in new information, present an all-new timeline that, act, that that puts him a little back further in the list and promotes witness by the name of James Brown as being the man most likely to have seen Liz Stride with her killer a mere eight minutes before her body was found. Um, now, I believe Israel Swartz and James Brown saw the same man, so by combining their two witness descriptions, we get a fuller picture 
of who this man looked like. And uh, so uh, I think uh, in terms of getting a little bit closer to Jack the Ripper himself, I think that might be the most significant new thing I offer. Um, And then in the third section, I talk about what's what's popularly known as the Goulston Street Graffito, uh, which is a chalk writing found on a wall above a bloodied portion of victim Catherine Eddowes' apron that was cut from her body and taken many streets away, dropped, and then a chalk message was found written above it um, that many believe was written by Jack the River, uh, and others believe uh, was not, that, that the apron was thrown under a piece of already existing graffiti, and that's, that it's coincidence. So I spend a lot of time talking about that. I, I It's my opinion that it was written by Jack the Ripper. Um, uh, it's just... Now, I've heard about that. We I know we were... Um the co-host I have, was talking about that. The message that was written, um, was it a name? No. No. It's, it was written in chalk. Uh, it was written on the jam of, like, a doorway. So it wasn't even written where it was, like, loud and proud like most graffiti is, you know, where you, if you're spending the time to write it, like, say, an anti-Semitic message, which is what people believe this was, you're going to write it big so no one misses it, right? This was written, we're talking, each letter was like uh, three-fourths of an inch or smaller, very small, written in the jam of a doorway right above this apron. And whoever wrote it had to crouch down because it was written on the black part of the wall that only rose up four feet from the ground. So they're kneeling down to write this real small, so, yeah, I believe it. it had to have been written by Jack the Ripper. No one who lived in that building had seen it before, so people were coming in and out that day and evening. They didn't see it. They would have seen it, too, because it was white against black right in their doorway. So it was written that evening, um, and what it may have said is, the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. And the the second word, which is often believed to be Jews, is spelled J-U-W-E-S. And now here's the problem, though. No two people who saw it saw the same thing. Other people wrote down J-E-W-E-S, J-U-E. No one saw the same thing, and that led me to conclude it may not even be a word. Um, it may have been an acronym for um, the first victim killed that night was outside the International Working Men's Educational Society, um, I-W-M-E-S. If you write those out, you know, like in cursive, it looks exactly like J-U-W-E-S. And so if you're looking at it expecting to see a word, you'll see J-U-W-E-S instead of I do. Unfortunately, Sir Charles Warren, the commissioner of police, uh, would not allow a photograph to be taken. A, phot- a photographer had already been summoned if they just held the writing for 30 more minutes until the sun could rise they could have gotten a photograph, and this would we wouldn't even have to debate this now. We know exactly what it was. But he refused. The uh, photograph is not taken. He had the writing rubbed out. The next month he lost his, his job, but that doesn't help us get any closer. So we'll never know what the message said. What I do know is that it, almost to a man, the investigators at the time did believe this was a clue, um, and many went even further to say it was written by Jack the Ripper, but we'll never know 100% for sure, but I think that is a likelihood, yes. Well, why would, why would he write something like that, especially, as you said, so small, not loud and proud? It wasn't 
so everybody could see it. So why? Well, what's the point of even writing it then? I think the point was, number one, he had to hide while he was writing it. And the only way to do that was to crouch in a doorway versus in the street because there were constables patrolling. Um, I think it may have been his original intention to leave the message over the victim herself, but time being of the essence and not necessarily wanting to loiter around the corpse for, you know, he cut off a portion of her apron and ran with it. Um, and then went into hiding, emerged later to leave the message and the apron. And that's what he did. Uh, why do it? That's a good question. There's a couple reasons. One is to taunt, is in the previous murder of Annie Chapman, there was a myth uh, reported in the press that a piece of graffiti had been written by the killer. Now, this didn't actually happen. This was just a myth. But I think that influenced him to actually do it. Um, also, the year before, in 1887, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had published his first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, which was about uh, a mysterious message written on the wall that they uh, didn't understand the meaning of. And, it, and here was Jack the Ripper the next year, who by this point had already become Scotland Yard's most sought-after man, and I believe he was... It's possible he was saw himself as a supervillain pitting himself against Scotland Yard or Sherlock Holmes and was imitating. It was life imitating art. So all of these things could have been a factor or any one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I just wonder why he didn't do it more or why he didn't get into uh, sort of like what the Zodiac was doing with sending letters, let's just say. Well, the Zodiac did that primarily because of Jack the Ripper. In the year 1965, two Jack the Ripper books were published. Now, one thing you, you people should understand about Ripper publications is in the, first, in, in the first 50 years after the Jack the Ripper murders actually occurred, there weren't a whole lot of books. Uh, more books have been pub on, published on Jack the Ripper since um, January of this year to now than were published in the first 50 years. So, but in 1965, two high-profile Jack the Ripper books hit, and the Zodiac would have read those, um, would have been familiar with them. Um, in fact, may have checked them out at a certain library. Zodiac killer uh, readers will understand what I'm talking about. And uh, and so, yeah, he was imitating uh, Jack the Ripper to an extent um, by writing the letters and all that. Jack the Ripper, on the other hand, had no one to imitate. Um, and he didn't write the famous Dear Boss letter that signed Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. That would have been written by someone else, probably a journalist. He may have written the famous From Hell letter that contained half a human kidney. He may have written that. That's 50-50. Um, but the chalk writing, yeah, I think he was high on himself. He had some successful murders. He decided, I'm going to kill two women in the same night, um, and I'm going to leave a taunting message. And, I, and he did that. So now, when you when you mentioned Elizabeth Stride, um, mm -hmm. so what is it that what is it that you found out new about about her? Well, it was really uh, just again a lot of in depth looking at it, uh, answering. She is the one victim where there is more misunderstanding surrounding her than any other victim. Uh, a lot of people believe she wasn't even a Ripper victim. And unfortunately, this and this is because a lot of Ripper authors have said she's not a Ripper victim, and then they present their argument for believing so, and their argument in every case is flawed. 
And so I spend a lot of time setting the record straight. Um, I also, you know, one of the, these people who don't think she's a ripper victim, they think her ex-boyfriend, Michael Kidney, was her murderer. And I present evidence why that's mistaken. So, and I'm not even saying I'm 100% convinced she was a ripper victim. I'm just pointing out, and it's important to point out, that all the arguments um, are based on misunderstanding or just wrong information. And so I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and then I look in depth at her murder. I conclude she most likely was a victim of Jack the Ripper. Um, she was killed with a cut to the single cut to the throat. That's not easy to do. Um, and, you know, a 10, 15 minute walk away from where Catherine Eddowes was murdered later, you know, 45 minutes later. So how many, you know, guys with really sharp knives who could kill in the same manner would have been on the streets in that same hour? Uh, I don't know why some people find it easier to believe there were two men like this than that there was simply one. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of a strange one. And, and you know, what's your opinion on whatever happened to Jack the Ripper then? Well, you know, um, same, you know, he died, went to prison, moved, um, and it could be any of those. It depends on, you know, you, but that's an important question. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a suspect, that suspect has to meet certain requirements. Um, at some point following the murders, he had to have died, moved, or went to prison, right? Right. Um, you know, you look at people like BTK, who, you know, Dennis Rader, who continues to live a normal life. Um, I don't think Jack the Ripper could have done that. I just don't. Uh, I think it's unlikely. So, you know, you look at, like, Walter Sickert. Okay, he killed all these women and then becomes a successful painter and lives way into the 20th century. Come on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of it, yeah, some of that just seems too strange because... Jack the Ripper was definitely very involved in his uh, ripping. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, he's not, not just going to quit and become. Uh, now, what about Richard Patterson's idea about the poet? Um, uh, Francis Thompson. Thompson. Yeah, Francis uh, Thompson. He is a much better suspect than, say, Walter Sickert, for, for, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, Richard Patterson, unlike some other... Ripper authors who, who promote suspects. He has been researching this for decades. And I, when I was new on the Ripper scene in the late 90s, he already had an ebook. And ebooks didn't even exist. He, I mean, but he had one somehow. Um, an ebook out on his early researches regarding the, the uh, his suspect, Francis Thompson, who's a poet right. who uh, definitely lived in the East End. And Richard has continued to research this guy for 20 years and um, fortunately uh, has finally put, you know, a discursive book out on it, um, which I think people will enjoy and should read. I, I do not advocate for Thompson as, as the Ripper, but could it have been him? Sure. Yeah, he, he was a character for sure. And he sure lived quite the, the life, you know, uh, opium and... Uh... Uh, with hookers and the whole the whole homeless, oh, yeah. you know, so he was definitely there, and his writing was very. Uh, do you think we ever find out who really did it? I mean, well, I think uh, we can get closer to it, and that's what my research has been about. My first book, I, I go back before the Ripper murders, and I look at 
earlier attacks and murders that all seem to focus around two houses next door to each other in 18 and 19 George Street, where no less than four women were murdered or assaulted inside of a nine-month period, leading right up to the Ripper murders. And I think whoever Jack the Ripper was um, had some association with that street or those houses. Um, whoever Jack the Ripper was was already a criminal, of other, a different sort of criminal, not a murderer, but an actual criminal um, who was uh, tall. He was, had to be taller than the victims. He would render them unconscious by putting an arm around their neck and performing a carotid chokehold that if you're, anyone familiar with the TV show 24 will have recognized Jack Bauer would put his arm around him and he'd say, don't fight it, don't fight it. And within seconds, they'd be unconscious, and that's realistic. Uh, that's how Jack the Ripper uh, must have rendered many of his victims unconscious and why they didn't scream, how he laid them out on their back, and then proceeded to kill them. Um, criminals in the East End, that's discussed in my books, uh, some criminals the more adept ones could, could do this, and they would do this as a form of mugging. So Jack the Ripper, I think, um, was familiar with that class, came from that class, um, may have worked for the lodging house keepers and, and been a what's called a bully um, and liked his work. He beat up prostitutes and began to like his work too much. Um, and I think he, his first couple of victims he killed by beating them excessively and then er inserting something into their vaginas, uh, which would eventually cause their death. And then he advanced to knives and became the guy we know as Jack the Ripper. I think that's a better theory than most because it's supported by a whole heck of a lot more evidence. But it's still just a theory. It's just supposition. Um, but I think following that trail eventually could lead to a very good suspect. Um, or it may not, you know, well, it's pro probable we'll never know who Jack the Ripper was. And what I mean by that is not that we don't know his name. One of the people already put forth might be Jack the Ripper, but we're not going to, we lack the sufficient evidence to where most of us can look at it and say, I agree. That's Jack the Ripper. That does not exist and is likely not to. Yeah. Now, and you believe that, um, I've heard both sides that Jack the Ripper was probably a doctor or medically trained? That's a, you know, that's the tough part is um, it does look like he had um, medical knowledge. Now, that's not the same as saying he had medical experience. Um, he may have had experience uh, as a butcher, a horse slaughterer, you know, cutting of animals to where he understood the necessities or the, the basic location of organs and how to cut them loose, um, you know, or, you know, but he's, I don't think he's a doctor. I don't see that at all. If you look, if you look at the murders, he upgrades his hardware as he goes along his knives. I, I suspect a doctor would have started off with, you know, a better knife than Jack the Ripper did. Um, so no, he wasn't a doctor, but he was someone who, who was literate and not everyone was then. A lot, a lot of the people in the East End were not literate at all. He was literate. He read the papers. He, he followed the press. Um, he probably read books. He may have trained himself, um, you know, medically and studied anatomy out of his curiosity for the, the female form. So there's, uh, Jack Thurper was definitely a different sort. Yeah. But I can't say that he, had any sort of medical training, no. Now, other than the uh, original five, or the, the there are six other murders that people have linked 
to Jack the Ripper. Have, have, we, have we come any further on that? Uh, can we add the, any of them to the uh, original five? Well, there's. it's not the original five. It's called the canonical five because um, a fellow by the name of Melville McNaughton, who was with the police starting in 1889, he said, here's the list of the five Jack the Ripper victims. But he had his own preferred suspect, Montague John Druitt, and so that's, I think, influenced his list. The majority of original police investigators believe there were at, uh, were six. Martha Tabram, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Liz Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. At least one of the investigators, Inspector Reed, believed there were nine. And he went back to the very, you know, to uh, Emma Smith and then on up to some of the later victims. Um, I don't, I think if there's a consensus today, um, there isn't one, but if there were, it would be more in line with there having been at least six murders. Um, some people would believe in as few as three or two even, but the majority of us, I think, would, would agree there were probably six uh, murders. Me personally, I believe there were certainly more. Hmm. And, and do you think the police did a good job? Were they really good at investigating then, or did they miss a lot of things? Well, they they missed a lot of things for sure. Um, and so, you know, you got to look at each murder case differently. And some of them, I think they did an amazing job. They were Johnny on the spot. They did all the right things. Um, in other cases, like Polly Nichols, which I talk about at length in the book, the police um, made a huge failure. Um, and when I say police, you got to understand there were different divisions, so different groups of police officers with their different ways of doing things from each other. Um, so some of them did a good job, some of them did not. Basically, to catch the Ripper, you needed to either catch him in the act of murdering someone, or you needed a confession. Uh, you know, the science couldn't even tell human from animal blood at that time. And so if you didn't ha have a you know an eyewitness seeing him kill someone, or you get a confession that would stand up in court, you're, you're not going to get a conviction. Hmm. And your thought on Ripper being a woman? Not a chance. No. <laughs> so just none of them, none of them. That's a silly theory, yeah. Yeah. Well, where did it come from then? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I guess, is what I've heard. But did police think that too or no? Um, they did. Police did. And I discussed that in my first book. They did not rule anything out, nor should they have. It was uh, early days yet. Um, Polly Nichols had just been murdered. They were following up leads, and it led them to some a uh, couple of women, like including one who had just days before had a fist fight with Annie Chapman. They had every right to look into her as a potential suspect, or maybe her boyfriend killed, you know. But uh, in the end, no, women have never been thought of seriously. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually did not suggest a woman as the killer. He suggested that a man dressed as a woman. Um would be able to kill the, the women and then escape unnoticed because everyone was looking for a man. Um, and that's, that, that's a good fictional idea for a, from a fiction writer, but it just doesn't play in reality. Yeah, it makes for a good story. And yeah. you could turn it into a good movie. <laughs> of course, you'd have to explain why the prostitutes were willing to go to dark corners with a woman when, you know, yeah. when they were out there looking for a man who would pay them money for their services, you see? Yeah. So, yeah, we were definitely looking at a man who then allowed these women to take them to spots where they believed 
they would have at least 10 minutes all to themselves without interruption. You know, it's a perfect killing spot, isn't it? Um, and you let your victim choose it. Well, yeah. Uh, do, do the work for you. Right. Now, <laughs> have you got closer on profiling who it might be, as in the type of person, um, any sort of criminal profile put together that's a little bit more advanced than what it was? Well, seeing as how professional FBI profilers have never caught a serial killer from a profile, but it left <laughs> a number of them get away, yeah. I steer clear of that. Instead, I just look at the evidence and what does it tell us. And, and like I said earlier, it tells me he had to have been tall, strong, um, comfortable uh, in the world of prostitutes. He knew his way around the East End. I mean, this is just obvious stuff once you get enough facts together. Um, he apparently had associations with uh, the, uh, the houses of 18 and 19 George Street. That was again a new piece of evidence I introduced in my first book that didn't that had never been talked about in any book prior to that, and should have been, but wasn't. Um, he would have been personally familiar, I think, with at least one of the victims, maybe more, but certainly not all of them. I think most of them were um, women he picked up. You know, he he was looking for drunk women. Um, who he could easily overpower, and he knew how to overpower them. Um, and then he knew what he wanted after they were dead, which was he stole their organs in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's it's, it's just uh, amazing. Uh, do you have a favorite movie or documentary or anything like that that you've seen on Jack the Ripper that sort of you you've enjoyed and you, you'd recommend? Well, when to talk about documentaries, there is not a single documentary that I consider to be accurate to any extent, although most of them are very entertaining. To me, documentaries, the purpose they serve is to A, entertain, and B, inform enough to let you decide if this is a subject you want to look into further. And if you do, then you have to go to books. Um, that's the you know so documentaries like fictional movies are there just to entertain mildly inform and then you decide if you're interested in reading the subject further my favorite movie jack the ripper is a terrible film that was made in the 80s for tv called terror at london bridge starring michael hasselhoff and <laughs> for some reason i just love that movie and i can't explain why um but that's my personal favorite ripper movie a recent Ripper documentary that I enjoyed a lot was called uh, Missing Evidence, and very entertaining. It's, uh, you know, not terribly, you know, it's, it's very biased, put it that way, but it's trying to argue that Charles Lechmere, a.k.a. Charles Cross, the man who found Polly Nichols' body, is trying to argue that he was actually Jack the Ripper. And for an, an argument that has no legs whatsoever, these guys did an amazing job in making it appear that it did have legs because even when I'm watched, when I watched it the first time for like a few minutes, I was convinced yeah. um, that's how good of a documentary it is. And so, but anyone watching it, just know that guy, you know, was not really Jack the Ripper, but it is a very entertaining documentary. So I would, edu I would just tell everyone to go on YouTube and watch as many Jack, Jack the Ripper documentaries as they want. Enjoy them. If they're intrigued, then then it's time to go buy books. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of Polly, Polly Nichols, what else do you did you find out about her? Well, a lot of stuff. Uh, she was um, apparently quite a spitfire. She was caused a lot of problems for the police. Um, 
And uh, at one point it was said, you know, one of the Ripper victims, which I believe to be Polly Nichols, had uh, attacked someone with a knife. And the, the importance of that, other than just filling in the blanks about a historical personage, the importance of that is it tells us a little bit more about Jack the Ripper. This was not a woman I would have screwed around with. I think she could have taken me in a street fight. Yeah. But, but she didn't take Jack the Ripper. Not only did she not take him, she didn't even get a chance to scream. So, again, these things tell us a little bit more about the man who, who killed her. Wow. That's crazy. And, and didn't, didn't she have her teeth taken out or something like that? No. No. Well, I mean, when she was younger, she got a couple of her teeth knocked out. Uh, so she was missing some, you know, a couple of her teeth, yeah. Oh, so it was just... She was, that had nothing to do with her murder. Yeah. yeah, she was just a rough girl, you know. Right. Oh. And was she, what was she? Was she a prostitute as well, or was she... Yes, very much so, and an alcoholic, uh, and, you know, she was drunk at the time she was murdered, and I suspect most, probably not all, but most of the victims were inebriated to some extent at the time Jack the River found them. I think that might have been something he was looking for. Wow. Uh, so you think it was, but he was looking for a prostitute maybe because of the access, the ease of access to her? more than because she was a prostitute? That's a, that's always a good question. Was he killing women and prostitutes were just the easiest, or did he specifically want to kill prostitutes? That's hard to say without knowing who it was, but um, prostitutes certainly would have been, you know, I don't even know if you'd call it easy because he was still killing them on the open street. Every time he did it, he risked capture, and he knew that. So whatever he was getting from what he did was much more powerful than his survival instinct. You know what I'm saying? Um, And it's like with BTK, I I believe what happened with him is as he got older and his testosterone lowered and things evened out, the risk of uh, his survival instinct overpowered his risk, the the amount of risk he was willing to to put into his murders, and that's what caused him to stop killing. and, and with Jack the Ripper, though, this didn't occur over the period of 15 years. This all, occurred, all the murders occurred over a period of mere months. Um, you know, he came and then he and then he went. You know, what happened? That's another reason. He couldn't have just burned out in that short of time, you know. Something else had to have stopped him. And so I think it was death or uh, imprisonment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, so this is, now you call this Jack the Ripper book, too. Now, do you plan on and writing more? I do. Um, I've already, I already know what my third book is going to be about. It's going to be taking a close look at a particular suspect who's never had a book about him before. Um, and I'm not going to be arguing that this guy was Jack the Ripper. I'm going to be just basically writing what I know about him, what I think about him, and letting the reader decide if they think he's a good suspect or not. I think he is a good suspect, but I'm not by any stretch convinced he was Jack the Ripper. And I think and any, any, honestly, in my opinion, any author who has managed to convince themselves that they've solved the case is, is deluding themselves. Because the best you can do is research a suspect, and you should always be your worst critic. You should, you should know what, like, if you're going to argue that someone was Jack the Ripper, you should be the, the best argument, you should be able to provide the best argument of why he was not Jack the Ripper as well. You should know both sides of the argument very, very well and present those fairly to your readers. Then you're playing fair. Yeah. Well, and once you make a decision like that, like this person is Jack the Ripper, then you no right. longer look for new answers. 
Exactly right. You're absolutely right. And you're essentially useless to the field at that point. Um, so, yeah, it's it, I have a high standard that for me to actually say, I believe this guy was Jack the Ripper, I have a very high standard that so so far no suspect has been able to meet. Right. There's possibilities. Oh, sure. well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think any of us would agree there are certain suspects who remain possible, even plausible. Yeah. But to go beyond that is, again, more a matter of ego than evidence. But you're not going to spend $7 million to uh, <laughs> try, try and uh, convince us that somebody you know has done it. No, no. I mean, I'll tell you what. If I if I make uh, twenty million, I'll be happy to spend seven million trying to convince you, Al. But we'll worry about that when it happens. Yeah, no. I was just uh, Patricia Carnwell's the one that said that she put seven million into the her last book. Right. She also spends money on jets and houses and goes to bankruptcy and whatnot. So I think she's a little loose with her with her change, but. Um, you know, if, if at the end of the day she turns up some stuff that's new, that's valuable to us, then I say go for it. You know, I have no problems with, with Patricia Cornwell or, or, you know, most other. There are people I have problems with because they, they lack uh, integrity, but I don't have any problems with her, no. No, I'm just thinking $7 million, I, you know, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, go for it. <laughs> that's a lot of, lot of money to put into Jack. I wish I'd gotten some of it. I went on her payroll, you bet. Yeah, and put it to someone that will never be brought to justice. <laughs> right. Well, if she's willing to pay someone to tell her she's silly, I want to apply for that job because I can tell her that all day long, you know. Yeah. <laughs> tell her why why Walter Sacred was not Jack the Ripper, but I suspect she, she doesn't want to hear that. No, 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 I don't. I think she'd probably keep that keep that away from her, you know. Wow. But you know, if I can, if I get her kind of money, I'm not going to spend it on the Ripper case. I'm going to buy me a, a cabin, like out in Montana or something, with horses, and live out there with a special lady. That's right. Uh, get away, get away from it all. You got that right. <laughs> wow. Well, this has been great. I, I always enjoy talking to you, and uh, this is this is great. I, I'm now uh, the book is called Ripper Confidential, and it's new research on the Whitechapel murders. Uh, guest is Tom Westcott. Thank you for talking to us, Al. Thank you for having me again. I'm going to write a third book just to get back on your show. <laughs> oh. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.